Good evening. It is a honor and a privilege to be here to open up the Word of God with you tonight. So let's go ahead and get into our passage. Ephesians 2 tonight. The last couple of times that I preached, we have been working through this great chapter in the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 2. Again, I think if you were going to survey even many in this room tonight, I think there were a lot that would say Ephesians chapter 2 is one of, if not my absolute favorite chapter in the entirety of Scripture. And it is deserving of, of anything that we can say about it, obviously. So we've looked so far at verses 1 through 3. We've actually looked all the way up through verses 1 through 7 the last couple of times that I've had the opportunity to be in the pulpit. But we're going to look tonight at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. Okay, the very last verses of the first paragraph of Ephesians chapter 2. But just by way of refresher, as we kind of get into this tonight, just want to remind us, as far as the background or the purpose for this chapter, it is Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verse 17, that frames the whole context for what he has to say, the great truths of Ephesians chapter 2. He says in chapter 1, verse 17, He says, as I pray for you, talking to the Ephesian church, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, in the knowledge of Him. Then verse 18 says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And then he goes on. His whole purpose in writing these things to the Ephesians and consequently to us who will come after, is that He desires that they and we would grow spiritually when we understand these truths. Hey, there is no spiritual growth that takes place in the life of any Christian without a right understanding of the truth of Scripture. And so what this shows us is that true spiritual growth is rooted in the reading, the understanding, and the knowledge of the Scriptures. Right living, as far as the Christian life is concerned, comes from a right understanding of what we would call doctrine. Now that is not to say that in order to grow spiritually, we have to be master theologians. But the point is that wherever we are in our walk with Christ, whether we are what the Bible calls spiritual babies, or whether we are more mature, the point is there is no growth that happens without increasing our spiritual knowledge, whether that knowledge starts with just a little, or whether that knowledge starts by a wide margin. So if we're asking asking the question, how do I grow spiritually spiritually? The place to start is the Scriptures. Start by reading and understanding and increasing your knowledge of the Scriptures. And by the grace of God, we will begin to grow closer to Him and to be more like Christ. So when we understand the truths contained in this passage, the intent, as Paul writes, is to spur us on to greater spiritual growth when we understand them and the Spirit of God who indwells each and every one of us as believers appropriates them in our lives. So Paul starts in Ephesians chapter 2. We looked at verses 1 through 3 individually by reminding the Ephesian church of who they were. 
They were dead. They were under the power of Satan and their fleshly desires. Ultimately, they were children of wrath. We moved on to verses 4 through 7 a couple of weeks ago, where he reminded them of the God who saved them. He saved them because he is merciful, gracious, and loving. He was not content to leave them as children or objects of his wrath, but out of his mercy, out of his grace, out of his great love, he acted to bring them to him. And now we move on tonight to verses 8 through 10, which we'll read here in just a moment. These verses show us how God shows the immeasurable riches of his grace. Let's read in verse 7. And then we'll pick it up and we'll move it into verses 8 through 10. He goes through the the entire first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 6. And in verse 7, he writes, God has done this so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Well, how does He show that? Well, verse 8 in our passage tonight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're going to look at two main points tonight in verses 8-10. through We're going to first look at what we have been given. And then secondly, we will look at who we are now as a result of what we have been given. But let's look at verses 8 and 9 as we get into our passage tonight. What is it that we have been given? Well, verses 8 and 9 plainly answer that question when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. We who were children of wrath have been given salvation. Now, there's a couple of things that Paul very much wants us to know and to understand about this gift of salvation. And the first thing is, it is a gift of God's grace. We talk about grace. We're talking about a gift that is unmerited. There's nothing in us that deserved God's favor. As children of wrath, we had brought that wrath on ourselves by our own willing and free choices. We didn't want God's grace. But in His love, in His mercy, He gave us salvation. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He died because it was God's good pleasure. As I was studying and preparing for tonight, I was reminded of something that I had read a long time ago. And it was a story that the late, great Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse told, and it's a little bit lengthy, but I wanted to read it tonight because I think it does a wonderful job of illustrating God's unmerited favor or His grace towards us as sinners. He tells the story about an 18th century social worker named Henry Morehouse in the slum district of London. He says, one evening, as he was walking along the street, this Henry Morehouse, he saw a little girl come out of a basement store carrying a pitcher of milk. She was taking it home. But when she was a few yards from Morehouse, she suddenly slipped and fell. Her hands relaxed their grip on the pitcher, and it fell on the sidewalk and broke. The milk ran into the gutter, and the little girl began to cry as if her little heart would break. 
Morehouse quickly stepped up to see if she was hurt. He helped her to her feet, saying, Don't cry, little girl. But there was no stopping her tears. She kept repeating, My mommy will whip me. My mommy will whip me. Morehouse said, No, little girl, your mother won't whip you. I'll see to that. Look, the pitcher isn't broken in many pieces. And he stooped down beside her, picked up the pieces, and began to work as if he were putting the pitcher back together. The little girl stopped crying. She had hope. She came from a family in which pitchers had been mended before. Maybe this stranger could repair the damage. She watched as Morehouse fitted several of the pieces together until working too roughly, he knocked it apart again. Once more she began to cry and Morehouse had to repeat, Don't cry, little girl. I promise you that your mother won't whip you. Once more they began the task of restoration, this time getting it all together except for the handle. Morehouse gave it to the little girl and she tried to attach it, but naturally all she did was knock it down again. This time there was no stopping her tears. She would not even look at the broken pieces lying on the sidewalk. Finally, Morehouse picked the little girl up in his arms, carried her down the street to a shop that sold crockery, and bought her a new pitcher. Then, still carrying her, he went back to where the girl had brought the milk and had the new pitcher filled. He asked her where she lived. When he was told, he carried her to the house, set her down on the step, and placed the full pitcher of milk in her hands. Then he opened the door for her. As she stepped in, he asked one more question. Now, do you think your mother will whip you? He was rewarded for his trouble by a bright smile as she said to him, Oh no, sir, because it's a lot better picture than we had before. Now I realize all analogies break down, so it's not a perfect analogy. But in this story that Barnhouse told, I think it's a wonderful illustration on a human level of God's grace and salvation. You see, we were created in the image of God. And yet, when our ancestors, Adam and Eve, sinned, that image, much like the picture in the story, was broken, right? It was damaged. It was scarred. It was marred. It no longer served the purpose that it was created to serve. Now, broken pottery is not entirely useless or worthless, nor is broken human nature. But as far as the purpose for which it was created, the pitcher for carrying milk, human nature for reflecting its creator, it was worthless. Human nature in its broken state is worthless for pleasing God or earning heaven. Romans 3, verses 10-12. through 12. No one does good. There is not even one. Just as a broken pitcher is not going to function for carrying milk or any other type of liquid for that matter, so too will human nature always fail when it comes to pleasing God or earning eternal life. But, in our natural state, we do still try to please God by our own behavior, right? Just like Morehouse, the man in the story, we keep trying to put the pieces of our broken righteousness, our broken nature, back together on our own. Much like him, in the physical realm, we fail in the spiritual realm. We can't achieve God's standard of righteousness, but we see parts of our character, okay, that from our perspective, are not so bad, and we try to work with those. This is the basic foundation of all man-made religion, right? There are things in you that can be pleasing to God, and you can get to God based on those. 
But what is the result? As our story said, in, in that terminology, a patchwork of shards. It still doesn't serve the purpose. It's not really put back together. Our efforts have really, ultimately, been futile, and God condemns them, and they end in our destruction. But God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to become the means by which our hopeless situation is transformed and turned on its head. You see, Jesus didn't come to patch up human nature or to take the broken pieces of our nature and somehow assemble them back together. He didn't come to assist us. He didn't even come to reform the human race. He came to redeem and to recreate the image of God in humanity. Like he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7, he didn't say, you must be reformed. You must act better than you are right now. No, what did he say? You must be born again. All this has to be set aside and you have to become a new creation in me, the Creator. So instead of trying to piece together the broken pieces of our fallen nature, Jesus gives us a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. It's not the broken picture that is reassembled. It is the entirely new creation. The new nature is nothing less than the nature of the holy and eternal God within us as new creations. And we, just like the little girl in the story, did nothing to deserve this. We did nothing to earn this. We were broken, fallen on the sidewalk. She didn't pay for her new pitcher. She didn't pay for the milk. She had nothing to hire this man with, nor to repay him with. He did this simply because he desired to do it. It was his good pleasure. In the same way as we said before, so God sent His Son Jesus Christ to die for sinners because it was His good pleasure. For His glory and the good of His people that He chose in eternity past to redeem. In his great little pamphlet, All of Grace, great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, Because God is gracious, therefore sinful men are forgiven, converted, purified, and saved. It is not because of anything in them or that can ever be in them that they are saved, but because of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. For by grace you have been saved. And then the second thing he wants us to know about this, you've been saved through faith. Faith here is not mere intellectual consent. It's not just agreement to a set of facts. It is a heart commitment. Those who are bound to Christ, who are in Him, who know His salvation, who truly believe, do not merely assent to certain ideas. They are bound to God and they live in response to Him. If you read through Ephesians chapter 2, you will notice over and over and over again the repetition of the phrases with Christ 
and in Christ. Over and over again. Okay, for example, verse 5. He has made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6. He seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. He shows us grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Okay, verse 10. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Okay, verse 13. In Christ Jesus you have been brought near. And so on it goes throughout the chapter. In Christ and with Christ. Over and over and over again. What this indicates is that faith joins Christ's people to Him so strongly that we are in Him and what is true of Him, what is true of our Savior Jesus Christ, is true now of us. His past is our past. He determines our present. He determines our future. And our future is glorification in Him. To be ultimately like Him. Salvation in Christ, that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2, does not come from merely believing ideas or making an emotional decision, but from being bound to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in faith. By trusting in His finished work on the cross and His resurrection and nothing else as sufficient grounds for the forgiveness of our sins. This is how God saves us. But He also tells us in verse 9 how He does not save us. Look at the second part of the verse. He said, this is not a result of works so that no one may boast. God saves us by grace through faith alone in Christ and not by any works that we could do. While faith is the channel by which the grace of God comes to us and unites us to Christ, it is not a deserving action or attitude on our part. In other words, our salvation is not a reward for our faith. You see, the faith to believe is not even of our own doing. It didn't even come from us. The faith that we have was given to us by God. And the Scriptures are clear in this. For example, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 Paul says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for His sake. The faith that we have has been granted to us as a spiritual gift. Salvation is not by human works or effort, but rather only through faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. If we can flip there real quick. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And on and on and on the Scriptures go. Reminding us at every turn that salvation does not come about by our own efforts, but by rather humble faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 9 tells us this is not a result of works, so that no one, no human being, has opportunity to boast. 
All human boasting is eliminated in God's plan of salvation. It was planned by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past for God's honor and His glory. And we get to share in that as we are bound to Christ by His death and resurrection. This salvation by faith and not by works is one of the most important truths that we could ever know or share. That we can never do anything to earn our way to God, but we must stop trying to please God on our own and trust Christ for salvation. If we want to go back to our story, we have to stop trying to pick up the broken pieces of our lives and piece them back together and think we're going to present that to God and that He's going to be pleased with that. No, God is pleased with His Son Jesus and with His work. And when we come in faith, trusting the work of Christ that pleased the Father, so much so that He raised Him from the dead, God says, I will accept that. I'll accept that faith. And He unites us to Christ and gives us salvation. But He rejects every work of man on which we try to base our hope for salvation. So we know, as Paul reminds the Ephesian church, hey, this is what you have been given. You've been given salvation. It is a gift of God by grace appropriated through faith in Christ. It's not your own doing, hey, but it is the good pleasure of God. He moves on in verse 10 to remind them of who they are now. He says, this is what you have been given, and as a result of what you have been given, this is who you are. Verse 10 says, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How far have we come since the first part of chapter 2? When he says, you were children of wrath. Now we get to verse 10, and it's you are His workmanship. You are His trophies of grace. But the purpose of God's creative activity is not merely just to have trophies. New creations are to be active and productive just like the Creator. Which is why He doesn't stop and just say, for you are His workmanship, period. He says, you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. We are recreated for good works. But make no mistake, these good works are the fruit of salvation and not the condition. In his commentary, God's New Society, the Anglican minister, John Stott, wrote that good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its ground or means, but as its consequence and evidence. If you were a child of wrath, saved by grace through faith, you are now God's workmanship, and you cannot help but show good works in your life, because they are a result of God's work in us. I want to take just a minute here and flip back to John chapter 15. Great passage that illustrates this. John chapter 15 verses 1 through 8 where Jesus is speaking to His disciples. And He says, I am the true vine 
And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Well, what is this fruit that He's talking about? This is the fruit of righteousness. Tangible good works that are evidenced in the lives of those that belong to Christ. Verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. What we see here is that bearing fruit, as Jesus says, is impossible when the branch is not attached to the vine. But when that branch is, Jesus says that branch bears fruit. We bear works of righteousness in our lives. They are a result of abiding in Christ, of walking in close relationship with Him. Our good works glorify God, and God will continue to work in us until we are what He desires us to be. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where again Paul writes this time to the Philippians church, he says, I am convinced that he who has begun this good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. Our good works, therefore, are a result of our new nature. So again, let's just step back and take in just how far we have come. This passage, this paragraph here that we have looked at, the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, begin with who you were. And it's not a pretty picture, right? You were slaves. You were children of wrath. And now we come full circle in verse 10, but this is who you are now. You are now His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You have been given salvation as a gift A gracious gift that comes through faith in Christ and Him alone. And you have now been recreated. You have been born again to be His workmanship in Christ. So what does this mean for us tonight? These are profound truths. These are wonderful truths. These are essential truths. But again, going back to the overarching purpose of this chapter, it's not just here for the purpose of knowing truth so that we have something to talk about from the pulpit. No, it's so that it can affect our lives and it can shape our lives and it can transform our walk or our lives here on earth. So how does Paul accomplish his goal of helping the Ephesians and us as we follow them in their spiritual growth? Well, as he writes in chapter 1, verse 17, we have a full understanding of what God has done for us. We have a fuller understanding of the hope, as he writes in chapter 1, verse 18, to which he has called us. And as he says in chapter 1, verse 19, we get a glimpse of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. So the implications of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, are enormous for what we do and think, even though, you'll notice, it does not contain any explicit commands. But they naturally come out of it. When we step back and we wonder how those who were dead in transgressions and sins could be saved. 
Hey, when we understand the plight of humanity without God and the privilege of humanity with God, we'll know a worship that embraces all of life as our only proper response. We do want to be careful to avoid misapplication of this passage. I think it goes without saying there's nothing here that flatters us There's no reason for pride in this passage. There's no reason to look at it and go, boy, aren't we special. No, the whole point of this passage is that what God has done for us is special. We were children of wrath, deserving of nothing else. And had God left us in that condition, He would have been fully justified. But He didn't. And He did it of His own good pleasure. There may be the temptation for some to look down on and withdraw from unbelievers, from those children of wrath. This passage does not support that. No, rather the passage encourages us to evangelism, encourages us to reach out to those in our lives that we know who are still in their condition as children of wrath. Because the same free gift that was offered to us is offered to them. And if they will but believe, they will know the same transformation that we have known. Now we talked also about being created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is not, however, talking about any sort of perfectionism in the Christian life. It is important and expected that believers will live godly lives. That our lives in some measure will reflect the fact that we are in Christ and bound with Him. But Scripture does not ever hint at the idea that we will achieve sinless perfection in this life, as some have taught. We should not self-righteously expect perfection from ourselves or from others. You see, the passage is very clear. Our salvation was not obtained by our works nor is it maintained by our works. Now, this is not a license to cast off any restraint and say, well, I've believed in Christ, therefore I can do what I want. We understand that. But it is liberating from guilt. It is freedom when we realize that even as believers in this life, before we are fully redeemed, fully saved from the presence of sin in glory, that we will still struggle with sin. And the same forgiveness that was extended to us in grace in the moment of our salvation is still available to us as Christians now. As we think about our response to these great truths, think of our worship. I referenced a couple of weeks ago Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, at the end of that great passage, which we don't have time to read tonight. After Paul has just given this great exposition on God's treatment of his people and his plan for them and his redemption of them and his plan for the future, he just comes to the end of that in chapter 11 at the end and just falls over in worship. For from him and to him and through him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. As we think about God's gift of salvation to us who were children of wrath, how could we do anything but 
fall on your knees in grateful worship. But it's not just worship that these truths result in. It also results in action. This text that we looked at tonight specifically focuses on our works as Christians. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Again, they're not necessary to gain salvation, nor are they necessary to maintain, but they are important because they come about as a result of our move from death to life in Christ. They are evidence of this reality. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And as we saw in John chapter 15, our good works glorify God. It should be our passion as believers to demonstrate the glory of Christ and His greatness through our changed lives. Again, not in living sinlessly perfect lives, for we all will fail. And our Heavenly Father is gracious and quick and loves to forgive His children. Hey, but if we truly know Christ, we understand if we are in Him, abiding in Him, and being made more like Him, that our lives will gradually, over time, more and more reflect Him. His righteousness will be the general pattern of our lives. We will begin to look like the Father that we claim to know through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we remember and we rejoice in the great truth that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works And the good works that we do now in Christ as a result of faith are evidence of the fact that we are in Him and that we are with Him. Seated, as it were, as Paul writes, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Spiritually, if not yet physically. And the implications for those who would read this passage, who would hear these words tonight, who do not know Christ, who have not responded to the free offer of salvation in repentance and faith, if you have not trusted Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you are still, by your nature, a child of wrath, as described in chapter 2, verse 3. You're a sinner guilty, condemned before God. And if you die in your sins, there is nothing but judgment. But for all those who trust in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross for their salvation, for forgiveness of sins, God gives grace. He will forgive all who turn from their sins and accept the death of Christ as payment for their sins. In this, you will cease to be a child of wrath and you'll become God's gracious workmanship, as he says in chapter 2, verse 10. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because the Scriptures teach that faith is the gift of God, that this eliminates your responsibility to exercise this faith and actively turn from your sins and trust in Christ and in Him alone for your salvation. The Bible speaks of judgment for those who will not turn, for those who will not repent. But the message of salvation is much more than a message of judgment. We only preach judgment to those 
who stubbornly refuse the offer, but to anyone who will turn in faith and look to Christ and to trust Him, there is nothing but mercy and grace and more forgiveness than you could ever know. So unbeliever, I encourage you to turn from your sins and trust Christ. Hey, and believer, those of you who are here tonight, I pray as we close here that the Lord will appropriate these truths in our lives through His Spirit. They will help us to, to know these, to understand these, and that they will result in action, in righteous living as His workmanship in Jesus Christ who has been created for good works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for these great truths that are contained in it. Thank You, Father, for this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 that shows us who we were and what You have done for us and who we are now. Father, we pray tonight for all of those who are here that know Christ. Father, that You would take these truths, that You would make them real in our lives, that You would give us understanding. Father, and that as we know them, as we chew on them, as we contemplate them, I pray that You would use them to make us more like Jesus. That we would reflect Him in our lives, in the way that we relate to You, in the way that we relate to those around us. Father, for anyone who has heard this message tonight who does not know Christ, I pray, Father, that You would open their eyes to their need for a Savior and that they would respond in repentance and faith and trust Him for their salvation. Father, I pray that You'd watch over us as we go our separate ways tonight, that You'd be with us, that You'd keep us safe, and that You'd bring us all back together as a family to worship You next week. We love You. We thank You for sending Jesus to die for our sins. And we pray in His name. Amen.